0: Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. July 20th, 2023, the Trump Legal Traffic Jam edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast. In Washington, D.C. I'm joined by John Dickerson of CBS Primetime from New York City. Hello, John. Hello, David. And hello, Emily. Even though you haven't introduced her yet, I feel it's always weird to not say hello to Emily. That is true. That's
1: nice of you. I appreciate it.
0: That's Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School. Just learned an amazing fact about how Emily does the show after even after 17 years, which is Emily records kneeling, which is insane. I <laughs> And it's very prayerful. Very prayerful, although not Jewish prayerful.
2: I was going to say, I always genuflect to both of you, but that's mostly implied.
0: This week on the GabFest, so, so many new legal twists and turns and challenges for Donald Trump in the courts and for his allies in the courts, too. Then why are all of Trump's Republican challengers bombing? Then the Republican campaign against the woke military and why this campaign has gotten so contentious and out of hand. Plus, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter.
3: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's Shopify.com slash system.
0: Special counsel Jack Smith has apparently signaled to former President Trump that he's likely to be indicted again, this time for crimes related to his efforts to overturn the election before and on January 6th. Meanwhile, Georgia prosecutors appear to be readying a case against Trump for interfering in their election And Michigan's Attorney General Dana Nessel, who we'll hear from in a second, charged 16 people with crimes relating to their attempt to be fake electors for Trump in 2020.
4: This plan to reject the will of the voters and undermine democracy was fraudulent and legally baseless. The false electors' actions undermine the public's faith in the integrity of our elections And not only violated the spirit of the laws enshrining and defending our democracy, but we believe also plainly violated the laws by which we administer our elections in Michigan and peaceably transfer power in America.
0: Emily, based on what we've learned so far, what is it that Smith could plausibly charge Trump with, which incidentally would be the third set of criminal charges he is facing uh, at the moment?
1: Incidentally, yes. Two of the charges are pretty familiar. Conspiracy to defraud the government and obstruction of an official proceeding. And the obstruction part would be, obviously, the certification of the 2020 election vote um, in the Capitol on January 6th. There's a third statute issue, which is called Section 241 of uh, Title 18 of the U.S. Code. And it was enacted after the Civil War so that federal law enforcement agents to go should, could go after groups like the Ku Klux Klan, who were terrorizing people to prevent them from voting. It's been invoked um, in more recent cases with allegations of things like election tampering. And I guess the basic theory here is that um, you can't mess around with an election, that there is a kind of criminal protection against falsely counting up votes um, or asking other people to falsely count up votes, and that perhaps... That was what Trump was doing. I wonder if they do indeed bring a charge under this statute if it will involve um, the allegations in Georgia or possibly Michigan where you know we're seeing these fake electors being charged this week as well.
0: Just to go a little bit deeper. So the there's a charge which is related to sort of a fraud and fundraising could be related to a fraud and fundraising where Trump went out and asked for money from donors. Claiming that it was to
1: fund his legal fund,
0: to fund his legal fund, even though he knew that that was a disingenuous claim. So that that would be sort of the fraud claim. Then there's the obstruction of a legal proceeding on, uh, of a congressional proceeding or government proceeding on January sixth. Where, where does the idea of ginning up fake electors and knowing that the electors are are illegitimate that would fall under the two forty one?
1: I think so. I think that 241 could be used for a sort of varied set of charges that all have to do with effectively trying to overturn the results of an election. And so if you can tie Trump to the fake elector schemes, or if you think his call to Brad Raffensperger, the um, Secretary of State in Georgia, and his sort of insistence on hunting for votes there, if you think that that is criminal in its behavior, it looks like Section 241 could be the place where the government would put all of that.
2: Couldn't it also be in a, a conspiracy to commit fraud? Yeah. I mean it could. defraud the US because the the election in the US is I mean, elections, that's how you you'd be defrauding the election, essentially.
1: Yeah, they could try to put it there. Georgia also has a state statute that is a pretty tight fit for um the idea of obstructing an election. You're not allowed as an elected official to get in the way of an election being certified, carried out the way it's supposed to be. A- election interference, effectively, is a state charge in Georgia. And so that could be part of the indictment as well, even though those are state charges.
0: I'll ask this a question of you, John, because I saw you tweeted about it. I don't know if you posted it on threads as well, but it was sort of, it was an indirect tweet. How much of these Trump charges do you think depend on his state of mind? And even if it's not legally dispositive, what his state of mind is, I imagine it would be a lot easier to convince a jury that these are crimes if it is clear that he knows that he lost the election.
2: Yeah, the I I think the reason I tweeted that is because I actually this is my point that I make constantly and we might as well make it at the start here, which is this always has to be thought of not just in the context of his legal peril and the defenses made in the legal context, but also that he is asking to be rewarded for all of this behavior. Uh, with a second term. So when his son-in-law, Jared Kushner said, oh, he really thinks that the election was won, that might get him off for the reason you just suggested, which is that in some of these cases, it would be, um, it seems that what Jack Smith is trying to prove is that Trump knowingly engaged in fraud when he knew he had lost the, the election. But even taking it out of the legal realm, do you want a president in the United States who thinks the moon is made of cheese? In other words if Kushner says he legitimately thought he won, that's an act of delusion that you wouldn't want a person in a position of power. I mean, you wouldn't even want a person with that level of delusion, you know, like making sure that your garden was watered. Um, So you, I, I always try to think of, of these things in the, in the double context.
0: What is it from a legal standpoint, Emily? I mean, does it, how much does it matter legally? And then of course there is this sort of, even if it doesn't matter legally to a jury, it might matter.
1: I mean, state of mind does matter. It's called the legal term of art as mens rea. Depends on the statute, whether you have to show like he was willfully doing something or negligently. I actually think that John's right. There's going to be evidence that he knew. But short of that, at some point when you are the president of the United States and there's overwhelming evidence for something, if you want to pretend that you don't know something that is like as plain as the nose on your face, that can't be an excuse anymore. I would think the jury would agree with that and that the prosecutors would be able to make that stand as the test that they're passing.
0: Let's get to the political response to this in a second. But before that, I, I am interested in your guys' take on the Michigan charges. So here we have the 16 people who who put themselves forth as fake electors for Trump in Michigan and who signed a series of documents ass- making false assertions about him, how they were, they were legitimate electors for michigan have been charged by the attorney general of michigan under state charges there and i think dana Nessel, the attorney general's belief was it looks like these folks are going to go off scot-free for that the federal government is not going to charge them there will be no federal crimes charged and we can't have a situation where people are not punished for uh making significant efforts to subvert the elections in michigan were you all um convinced by this, that these folks needed to be charge- charged. Some of them are just, you know, they behaved not well, but they're just like kind of everyday citizens who are Republican zealots.
1: I mean, I'm never super excited about having the lower level people pay a lot of the penalty for behavior like this. I wonder if they're being charged so that they'll plead guilty to something relatively minor in terms of a penalty and then flip on the higher up people who really should bear responsibility for a conspiracy like this. I'm in favor of holding people accountable for this kind of fraudulent act because it just seems like a real threat to the functioning of our government. How low do you need to go down the food chain? Yeah, I don't
2: know. On the other hand, I mean, there also we should note that, that the uh, attorney general in Arizona Um, Chris Mays has also launched an investigation that seems to be a version of uh, sort of the Arizona version of what they tried to do in Michigan. So if Arizona, Michigan and Georgia were the three states, um, it looks like, you know, it looks like there's basically action at all three state levels. The integrity of the because elections are are um, located in the states. It seems to me this it is useful to have this happening at the state level and that in a situation like this where you have a president who relied in part on the self, maybe not self-actualization, but the inspired movement of those within his party, you do want to have some pressure on people to not, you know, to people to think for themselves, not to be able to sort of get off by saying, well, we were just kind of doing what the leader of our party was suggesting we do.
0: And also in this case, it's clear that these folks were given warnings that what they were doing was not right. And they knew, for example, that they were supposed to gather in the Capitol. They were unable to gather in the Capitol. and yet they signed legal documents and lied and said they had. And so, so it's not they were they did they they did have dirty states of mind. Uh, there were dirty mens reas there, um, filthy mens reas all across Michigan. I just going back to the charges. I just when the charges that Trump faces, the one that really seems most dangerous to me, or the the one that is, is most threatening, does have to do with not so much with what the January 6th protesters did in response to Trump's urging, not so much the fundraising. I'm willing to believe that both of those things are crimes, but it has to do with concocting a legal strategy where you get false slates of electors, where you try to strong-arm the vice president. Like Those those acts, the kind of deliberate uh, legal acts to, to distort, feel to me incredibly dangerous, and those have to be... Dangerous for the country.
1: Dangerous for the country. You yes. mean,
0: yeah, the, those and worthy the, those to, of being charged. Just like, to clarify, you know, the, that's the the crown jewel in the charges to me are the, is the legal strategy to do all this less the less the instructing the protesters to go do stuff and not not uh, stopping them. That feels more ambiguous.
1: Yeah, the instructing the protesters to go do stuff is, to me, the weakest part of it as well, because Trump, as usual, you know, he does say the words peacefully protest in there somewhere. Eventually, too late, he tells them to back down. I just feel like we're going to get bogged down in a whole big dispute about free speech and, you know, um, words versus actions. Whereas I agree with you that the legal strategy that seems like it truly was about, overturning the election results are a set of clear actions. And, you know, there are other people involved. John Eastman, the lawyer who was advising Trump, a couple of Trump advisors. Jeffrey Clark who was in the Justice Department. Mark Meadows, maybe like there are other people who have an incentive who would also be criminally liable, potentially, and have an incentive to testify against Trump to save themselves.
0: So, John, the Republican response so far has been kind of muted from other uh, leading Republicans certainly not particularly condemnatory of Trump in advance of these charges. Uh, it's the usual line that we've heard so far. It's a politicized Justice Department, a weaponized Justice Department. And I assume this will not shake the race up at all or or change voter behavior. But I would like to be wrong.
2: You're not wrong. Remember what Kevin McCarthy said, um, the House Speaker When this happened, he said the president bears responsibility for the attack and that he has to admit his responsibility, not only admit it out loud, but then take actions after January 6th to smooth the way for a peaceful transition for Joe Biden. Trump did none of those things. In the subsequent time period, more and more evidence has come out out of the mouths of Trump's closest aides and family members of acts he took um, that further confirm Kevin McCarthy's original assessment. And yet Kevin McCarthy is now flirting with the idea of possibly trying to hold votes to undo Trump's second impeachment, which was related to the run up to January 6th and the events of January 6th. Um, he's also, um, being pressured by Trump and may very well give in to endorsing Trump for president. So, um, Lindsey Graham is a similar, uh, you know, a similar person who said that, um, that it was, uh, that the president's actions were the problem on the sixth, that it was a major part of his presidency, um, that his, that his staff was, um, distorting the facts and providing misinformation. Um, he now, Senator Graham says that the, the, that this possible indictment for January 6th is, um, frivolous and, and he has endorsed Trump to running for president. So as more evidence has come out, the position has actually been to retreat from their, um, harsher positions mitch mcconnell's the only one who stayed in the same place
0: but do you guys think like these are politicians and their motivations are different than voters is there some set of voters for whom this accrete the accretive value of these charges peels them away from trump or, or just lowers enthusiasm, therefore, like ultimately lowers turnout? Or do we just not know Her that? Her
2: name yet? is Sarah McGillicuddy. She lives at 431 Locust Lane in Nashua, New Hampshire. There's a single voter. Uh, I don't think, I mean, more than one, maybe, probably not. I mean, it's- um, What if
0: it turned out that that was a real address and a real place <laughs> you just made it up? That would be weird. I
2: mean, it, w- w- what we've seen in the polling so far and in the response to other candidates, which we'll talk about in another segment, has been that um, the more there have been legal problems for the for the former president, the better his standing in the party has, by the measures we can tell, has has gotten.
0: Emily, last question on this topic. So we have a documents case, this uh, subverting election case, federal subverting the election. We have a New York state charges, uh, payments to Stormy Daniels.
1: Which we learned this week will stay in New York state court, according to a federal judge's ruling.
0: Uh, We've got looming Georgia state charges. These Michigan electorate charges, which don't implicate Trump directly, possibly Arizona, for the at least the four cases the four potential criminal cases that Trump faces how does this get staged like how do they how do you even do project manage this so you have a calendar where this can all happen
1: New York State Court is different from federal court. The Justice Department will be managing a case in Florida and perhaps one in D.C. as well. The D.C. case, if it comes to fruition, as it seems like it probably will, looks like a better jury pool for the Justice Department. And then there would maybe be uh, a case proceeding in Georgia State Court. I am sure the different judges will be aware of each other and the calendars they are setting. But the Trump legal teams will surely try to drag this out as long as possible, and they'll use the multiple multiple proceedings as a reason for doing that.
2: And they did already this week in front of Eileen Cannon in Florida in the, in the Mar-a-Lago documents case, arguing that basically not only was there a boatload of stuff in that case that they would take them forever to go through, but that that... Trump also was facing these other challenges and that for him to go through and look and and prepare himself for that case, given all the other things he's got to worry about was a reason for delay.
1: I mean the, the whole game for them is delay for the very obvious reasons that if he's elected president then something strange is going to happen to all of these charges and if they're not resolved he can federally pardon himself maybe I mean who knows but certainly if he gets elected that would cast an entirely new framework he would control the justice department it's just a complete um yeah a big win for him to delay this as much as possible
0: Slate Plus members if that's part of the regular Offering of the Gabfest. Imagine what Slate Plus offering would be if if John Dickerson can bring that on a, just in a random Thursday morning. Not a random July twentieth Thursday morning. Imagine what he'll bring to a Slate Plus discussion. Uh, you get bonus segments on the Gabfest if you become a member. And this week's bonus segment, we're going to talk about the actors and writer strikes in Hollywood. Do they matter? Who should win them? If you go to slate.com/gabfest plus, you can become a member today. We are still a month away from the first debate and six months from real voting. But my goodness, the Republican field is struggling. Lower tier candidates like Doug Burgum, the North Dakota governor, are resorting to bribery to try to get on the debate stage. It, it, it succeeded. Burgum is, has been offering people $20 in exchange for $1 donations to his campaign, because one of the thresholds for being on this debate stage is that you have 40,000 donors. So if he can get people to donate a dollar, he will add up his his donors and that will help him qualify for the debate stage. It's not, it's not legal. It isn't legal. You're not allowed to, it's, I mean, that doesn't mean he will go to jail, but it's not really legal.
2: It's not legal or it's not allowed by the.
0: Yeah. You're not allowed to compensate people. You're not allowed to reimburse people for their political contributions.
1: Right. Otherwise, like right, this would happen a lot. Although I guess if you normally spend more money than you bring in, that's not helpful. But you could reimburse bundlers, for example.
0: Also, Mike Pence has hardly raised a dime, and Ron DeSantis is is flailing in the polls. Not exactly plunging, but certainly not not going kind of plunging. Plunging going in sure. the wrong going, going really in the wrong. Direction. Direction.
2: I mean, he's down the average of polls. Both 538 and uh, Real Clear Politics, he's dropped tw- ten points since he entered the race relative to Donald Trump. That's that's kind of a plunge,
0: and he's firing his staff. So, so John no one is creating any weather for themselves. Do they all have the same problem? Is Trump their problem, or do they each have a different problem?
2: It's a good question. I mean, they all, you know, like all, uh, each family is miserable in its own way. Um, we are all, we all have our spe- special idiosyncrasies. And so this is true, too, of candidates. They all have their own individual challenges. And that's true of any other campaign. But th- th- they, th- those individual challenges don't even get to come into play yet, really, because the big challenge is that, um, Donald Trump is incredibly popular with the kinds of people who vote in primaries who can, as Emily said, make his own weather when he's not making his own weather. His enemies um, in the Democratic Party or liberal um, precincts are um, doing things to inspire Republican and, and MAGA voters. Right. So if it's about negative partisanship, even if people don't like Trump, they really dislike you know, Adam Schiff or whoever else it is that they don't like on the, on the democratic side. Um, And it's really hard to fight through any of that with a candidate. And I still come back to this finding, which seems pretty consistent, which is that even Republican primary voters who don't particularly aren't thrilled about Donald Trump, they're not thrilled about candidates who spend a lot of time attacking Donald Trump. So in a normal world, what you would say is this person has proved he is, he has disqualified himself from the office he seeks. Based on the behavior while he was in that office, there is no clearer indication of his lack of credibility for the office by the standards we should apply during these campaigns, which is, is this person fit to do the job? That's the argument a Republican can make. It's probably one of the most destructive arguments you could make as a Republican candidate.
0: The candidates I am interested in, there are two candidates I'm interested in besides Trump. One is DeSantis, the other is Tim Scott. So I want to talk start with DeSantis. So, Emily, is DeSantis's problem, besides what you just identified, what John just identified, which is the overwhelming hold that Trump has, but is his problem DeSantis? Is it that he, as people get more exposed to him, they like him less?
1: I am reminded that, low many months ago, John said that as people got a closer look at DeSantis, he was going to not, live up to his image on paper that he kind of seemed perfect, but that actually he had all these flaws and I can't tell whether his problem is this kind of weird off-putting personality or whether the policy positions he has staked out and the whole like, I am Mr. Fight Woke, Anti-Woke is just too niche. And even though he's done it, obviously in this very like calculating focus group way where he's going after this particular segment of the Republican primary, and I'm sure they have lots of voting data that suggests this is the right way to go, that it's still just like not hitting in part because Trump just occupies this space so um, beautifully himself and that actually there's nowhere for DeSantis to go and this notion that he's like super competent just doesn't come across enough and I especially continue to think that the fight with Disney is a big problem for that. So I can't tell whether it's his personality which we were warned of or um, or the way he has positioned himself, or some combination, or just the way in which like, once you seem like a loser, you kind of like deflate like a balloon.
2: I'd also like to add a a little corollary to what I said earlier, which is that if you view, as many participants in the Republican primary process do, the investigations into Donald Trump as the weaponization of politics, and you think that Democrats are going to stoop to those levels, then you want somebody running your party, who is a proven performer in cutting corners, being tough, breaking the rules, damning the torpedoes. And there's nobody in politics who's better at that than Donald Trump. So it's not just a, I deframed it in the negative, which is that Republican primary voters, voters don't want candidates to attack Trump. There's also a positive way to look at it. They see the race as an existential fight between those who know what's going on, which is that the liberals are going to ruin American life and the future of their children, and those who don't. And Ron DeSantis, as much as he talks about wokeness, is not is no match for Donald Trump in the, in the existential fight against the liberal hordes.
0: By the way, listeners, Emily is having some technical difficulties, so if she sounds odd or off for the rest of the show, that is why. Apologies.
1: I feel like I should just have that as an excuse in my life,
3: always.
0: I want to turn to tim scott which is a sentence i thought i would never say who's that I'm <laughs> tim scott is not lighting up the polls like i'm not pretending that tim scott is lighting up the polls but tim scott it does turn out is extremely well liked and tim scott has plenty of money and, and he's
1: a republican senator from south carolina he's running a republican for
0: president right senator that's a good from place south yeah uh yes noted um he's the non-lindsey Graham republican senator running from south carolina he's very conservative very religious he's he's definitely not anti-trump but he's also not an asshole um and he's attempting to occupy some sort of optimistic space in the republican primary field and it occurred to me john and i and this just could be my wishful thinking that 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 the country is different than it is that if trump's legal troubles do somehow actually end up disqualifying that the person who might benefit that Scott that scott feels like a somebody who might emerge and rise he's not an anti-trumper he's not doesn't have the personality flaws that DeSantis may have and he's a likable character am I just completely kidding myself
2: I two things um, uh, come to the fore when you talk about that one is that if it's true that one of the big mistakes that that um, I and others made in watching Trump's rise is that even though I knew there was an audience for Trump and felt that in my bones going all the way back to 1992 in the Buchanan campaign and even before that, that I didn't think that a, as big a portion of the evangelical, um, kind of character first base of the Republican Party would flip as quickly as it would and align behind him when there were other candidates. If that was a mistake in overreading all of that reporting I'd done over the years, talking to these voters who said character mattered, personal character mattered so much to them and their candidates. Is it possible that I'm overreading what seems to me to be quite locked in in the race, which is this hold that Donald Trump has on the party? What if I'm as wrong about that? And it's just like, it looks that way, but that ain't it. So how I still can't I can't figure out how I'm wrong about that but whatever maybe just wrongness is built in and will be yet to be discovered it that would be one precondition for Tim Scott rising the second thing about Tim Scott rising that that seems possible is that Tim Scott is a is a great story for voters of any party to tell themselves of a of a candidate who comes from very very humble beginnings and makes something of their life and then goes on to succeed in politics that is the American dream in in politics. And so if you are a member of a party, you want to get behind a candidate like that. Um, And so particularly for a party where a lot of voters, whether they will admit it or not, have had to swallow deep principles that they've held their whole lives and repeated at rotary clubs and told their family members about what constitutes a public figure and the character requirements of a public figure. They've had to swallow all of that. They wouldn't have to. They could celebrate it again with with Tim Scott. He also has a lot of institutional support in the, in the institution he comes from in the Senate. So I think there are all these possibilities. It's just, you have to get over that. Um, and, and your question had embedded in it, the idea that you get over it by having some legal event that, that actually does disqualify Trump. So I think if that happens, yeah. And he's got a lot of money. Um, Tim Scott does in his, in his bank account. So I think it's not a crazy thought.
0: Emily, are you looking forward at all to this first Republican debate? Do you think a debate stage could change any of the dynamics in this race?
1: Mm, I mean, I'm kind of curious in like a popcorn way. I guess it could if someone like really breaks out. But mostly I think it's just going to be like a melee. It will be a question of whether anyone figures out how to gang up on Trump, right? I mean, that would be the smart play, except if they coordinate in some way, then they could be aiding each other. And also none of them really seem to have, except for Chris Christie. I don't think Asa Hutchinson is going to be on the debate stage. So maybe Christie, if he's there, it seems like he's the only one who really has an appetite for going after Trump directly. And that is just the weirdest dynamic.
2: In 1980, Reagan didn't show up at the first debate in Iowa and um, and all the other candidates beat up on him and he ends up losing Iowa. And, and, and Bush comes out of it with the big mo, as he called it. Um, of course, the Big mo got squashed in in New Hampshire, which would be p- prob- probably what would happen if somehow it hurt Trump. But the dynamic that that hurt Reagan in 1980, I don't know that, I'm not sure that Donald Trump doesn't come out stronger from a debate he doesn't show up at. As Bob Costa pointed out, though, temperamentally, Trump doesn't like to to resist a chance to counterpunch. And so while he seems to be saying he's not going to show up at the debate, could he really resist fighting in the moment? With somebody who tried to come after him. Um, you know, just as a matter of personal constitution, that'll be an interesting test.
1: He'll be posting on Truth Social the whole time, and then they'll like be reading those posts from he, the debate stage. No, but John's
0: saying he'll show up. John's saying I he'll show up. Show up. Yeah. I'm making like, a
1: different prediction because I think you're right, but that he won't show up. But I like your scenario much better.
2: It would be also fascinating if all the other Republican candidates got together and said, look, it's a pretty simple, easy case to make for why he's either unelectable in a general election context or he has, in the way he's behaved in office with respect to January 6th or other things, broken his oath and shouldn't be rewarded with a re-election. Like, I mean, I'm not saying that would work, but I mean, you could imagine them all colluding to say we have to make this case collectively before we can each fight individually.
0: They're literally temperamentally incapable of it. They don't believe it. Vivek Ramaswamy, who's probably running number two in the race, is actively opposed to that position. So, good luck. Yeah, that was that was probably the most delusional, fantastical thing you've ever said on the show. We have another GabFest Reads dropping in your feed this Saturday. It's my conversation with David Gran about his marvelous new book, The Wager, about a shipwreck in the 1700s. It is a brilliant and gripping and thrilling book and david is just delightful to talk to he of course is a the author of so many of these modern classics uh adventure and exploration the lost city of z for example um and uh you can get that in your feed on saturday Capfest reads
4: hey slate listeners i'm christina cotarucci the host of slow burn gaze against briggs I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, And Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations again that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at tribecafilm.com/slowburn. Hope to see you there. It's opinion palooza season here it's late.
1: I'm Dahlia Lithwick, the host of Amicus, Slate's podcast about the courts and the law and the Supreme Court. As this Supreme Court term hurdles towards its close, the justices are handing down decisions that will shape our politics and our lives for years and decades to come. My team and I are putting out analysis of the biggest cases just as quickly as we can bound to our closets and fire up our laptops to speak to you. From presidential immunity to social media content regulation to domestic abusers' gun rights, we will be here unpacking the news for you. Listen to Amicus wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Alabama Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville, a Trumpist former college football coach, has single-handedly blocked the Senate from approving hundreds of military promotions to general and admiral, including... Promotions of branch heads, um, branch chiefs, till the Senate votes on whether to ban the military from paying the travel expenses of service members who have to travel for abortions. Which the the Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin has authorized the the military to do that. Meanwhile, House Republicans have hijacked the National Defense Authorization Act, which is a bill that gets has to get passed every year in order to to fund the Pentagon. And they've passed an NDAA that ended funding for abortion travel, ended all diversity programs in the military, prohibits paying for any policies to mitigate climate change by the military, and stopped trans health care in the military. Um, So, John, traditionally, the NDAA is a bipartisan bill, not a lot of political posturing. But this passed the House with basically no Democratic support. It will definitely not get through the Senate as written, but something has to get through the Senate. So where is this going to end up?
2: I don't know. I mean, Schumer has said Tuberville can get his vote. It's not exactly clear what that means. So essentially Tuberville, Tuberville's his argument, um, which if you believe what he believes, is not crazy. This is what he believes. He's a senator. He gets to do this. Like there's a, it's a and, and, and he's gone far further than, um, than other senators. But, a lot, but other senators have held up nominations before.
0: Well, Rand Paul is is holding up all State Department nominations right now, including dozens of ambassadors, until he gets a bunch of documents on the origins of COVID.
1: This is a bad system where one senator can hold things up. But you're right that if you are living the courage of your convictions, then you use it. I guess.
0: And
2: it is a bad system. On the other hand, it, when it has worked, it's a good system, which is to say, hey, we we all got to live in the same space tomorrow. So let's. Um, it, it it refreshes or should the kind of we're all in this as legislators together process. Now it doesn't in this and and this is in to the extent that this has institutional downsides that's one of them which is is Tuberville is not um you know Duberville is doing what other senators have done. Again, he's doing it in a far more extreme fashion by taking on 260 military confirmations or nominations which um which they could vote on one by one. They're they're done in block. Um, and, and he's basically saying, well, do them one by one. If you did that, according to Jack Reed, who's the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee, it would take 27 days if they voted around the clock. So obviously they're not going to do that. But Schumer said he can have a vote. So does that mean he gets a vote on an amendment to the NDAA? Um, or does he get a standalone bill? And that matters because I think, uh, I, might be, I might be wrong about this, but amendments to a bill are usually have a 50 vote threshold. So this can come and go quickly. If it's a 60 vote threshold as a standalone piece of legislation, Tuberville's argument is basically this is not something the Pentagon should decide on its own. It should be something the American people have a a say in. Abortion is something Americans care about. um, And so they should have a say in it. That's his point of view. And so he wants the Senate to speak for the American people by some piece of legislation. Um, It it may just get that he may get his vote and it goes away. I mean, he so far has not... Uh, been kind of um, flexible in any way, so Schumer may give him what he wants, and he may still say no.
0: Emily, do you think it is ludicrous that this single senator has, can block unanimous consent, and by blocking unanimous consent, makes it impossible for them to vote in a block on these on these nominees, uh, and just forces them to have to slow walk everything? I mean, it's it's like it is um, it's work it's work to rule. He's making the Senate work to rule. Right? Um, is that is that an okay thing to exist or not? I mean, it's it just it does seem in this case absolutely ludicrous. But maybe you could cite for me an example where it would seem no important.
1: Unanimous consent is a really important tool of legislatures, right? They can wave through a lot of routine business quickly. It it is unanimous, so in that sense, like that's how it works. Whether there should be some middle ground between having to individually approve everybody and take all this time and require every single person to be on board, that's a a question that the Senate rule folks could ask themselves. Um, But I don't have a problem with unanimous consent in general as having some role to play. One thing that interests me about this is I think it's quite bad politics for the Republican Party. I mean, I don't think Tuberville really cares. I'm sure his seat is perfectly safe, and maybe it's pretty good politics in his very red state. But Republicans would be much better off not talking about abortion all the time. There's lots of polling that suggests that.
2: I couldn't agree with you more. I am, Tuberville kind of looks the part, right? So if you're the Democratic Party and you want to say, and you've successfully said that the, the Republican Party is too extreme, then um, a senator who is behaving this way on an issue that's worked for you in the midterm election seems to me to be politically useful for you. He's also a senator who has forced the number two and number one Republican senators in the Senate to th- say things like "There's no place for white nationalism in our party," because Tuberville in a kind of clumsy, uh, we've covered the Tuberville basically. It was just, just unbelievable. defended white nationalists. In the end, he said, and I think that if you were being fair to him. I mean, he, he, he what he was trying to say is people who get called white nationalists are not all white nationalists. He was saying that this broad brush is used. Whatever. You don't want to be on the side of doing anything to give quarter to white nationalists. And that's the position he's put his party in. You don't really want that. Um, so I'm not sure how this is great politics for having him at the center of things. I think the the idea of readiness, uh, which is which is um, you know the Secretary of Defense has said that these holds hurt readiness um, and uh, various other people on both sides of the aisle have said that this is a military problem. It hasn't persuaded Tuberville and I don't think the politics of that are, I don't think that there's going to be a lot of people up in arms about readiness, but your point, Emily, about the salience of abortion seems to me to be a very good one.
1: I was talking to a Republican strategist in a purple state yesterday who said that he just wished to God that abortion would go away for the sake of Republican candidates.
0: Well, they're trying to make it go away. That is their plan.
1: (laughs) No, I meant as an issue. No, he was making the opposite argument that he wished it would stay available so people could stop voting on it because it is hurting Republicans.
0: What, what did you guys make of the House Republicans emboldened, whipped to a frenzy by their conservative, most conservative members, passing an NDAA that is filled with all these divisive amendments?
2: Were they whipped to a frenzy? I thought they did it sort of begrudgingly. I mean, this is the problem that, that Kevin McCarthy is in, which is that I don't think he wanted that stuff in the bill. I think he had to do it because the the, the MAGA portion of the, you know, is angry with him for making the debt limit deal um, and they want to assert themselves. So I, I mean,
0: yeah, I, again, sorry, that's, I, I, that is kind of what I meant. I meant it was, I, I, I put it very poorly. Uh,
2: but I think you also have a Tuberville problem in the house when you have Congressman Eli Crane talking about colored people when talking about um, having um, I guess it was re- with respect to, um, diversity programs in the military. You don't want to be that, the party in which that is um, you know, in the news a lot. So I, uh, that is among the problems. Also, just if I can stay on this for a moment, um, Crane said that we don't want our military to be a social experiment. The military and the integration of the military is probably one of the um, most successful um, and leading civil rights events of its era.
1: And the military itself is very clear about the crucial nature of that diversity, and has gone to great lengths to defend and promote it, and has no compunction about doing that.
0: Is it okay, um, though, to lard up a bill like this with your anti woke agenda? Feels like what the what the House did is totally fine. I I didn't get the I didn't get the indignation that oh we've taken this bill that's normally passed with bipartisan support, and now we've we politicized it i was like yeah i mean that seems fine go ahead
1: i mean i don't know why is it so great that everything's getting politicized can not we just have a normal government where people like pass the basic tasks of the government and not everything has to get wrapped in the darkness of the culture wars like i I mean sure i guess it's like okay but it doesn't seem beneficial no i I, I disagree with
0: all the policies and think they're terrible
1: but even if, even if you loved all the policies, like, why is this the vehicle for them?
0: Well, couldn't you
2: imagine, though, if the, if the f- foot were on the other shoe, um, uh, so to speak, that you could, you could certainly imagine that um, liberal Democrats would hold up the NDAA in order to protect abortion rights if there were a, a, a Trump administration doing the opposite?
1: I can totally imagine that, and maybe that's not a great idea. Yeah, but maybe I guess
2: my point is, it
1: just we should just like pay people who work in the military.
2: I meant arguing that this that that protecting abortion rights is such a fundamental right to be protected, and that the Supreme Court has so overreached that um, one must, because of the seriousness of the issue, politicize this thing that hasn't been. In other words, doing it in this way, not just that you're doing it. But breaking the glass is a sign of how urgent the moment has become, and that that's why you do it. You know, do you see what I'm saying? It's making it's making a virtue of taking this thing that has not been politicized because the moment is so dire. That seems to me to be totally plausible.
1: Yeah, and I guess at least these are abortions in the military as opposed to like writ large, right? We're talking about whether women can travel who are in the services and who pays for that.
2: It's also important to make the distinction you just made, which is this is not to get abortions. This is merely to be reimbursed for travel.
0: Let's go to cocktail chatter. When your promotion has been put on hold and therefore you're just sitting there drinking, 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 waiting for the Senate to confirm you to be ambassador to Uruguay or or uh, admiral, um, what will you be chattering about, Emily?
1: I read a really interesting study this week from the Center for Justice Innovation, about why young people uh, in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, in this case, carry guns. And it's this innovative model. They got 100 um, mostly young Black men, ages 15 to 24, to show up and um, overcome the trust concerns they might have to just talk about what they're carrying guns for. A lot of what they said matched up with the reporting I did for my book a few years ago that people are carrying because they think it's the best way to protect themselves. They have a kind of generalized fear or a fear of particular people coming after them. There are people who carry for their image. They think it'll make them look tougher and better. Uh, people who carry as part of street hustles. And then there are you know, actual shooters, but they're in a real minority. Um, and I just thought it was really worthwhile reading through these quotes about what people are going through. Um, I always feel a sense of poignancy about this kind of reporting because people think they're making themselves safer when they carry guns in poor urban neighborhoods, but really they're not. They end up often in situations where there's a lot more danger to themselves or others. And so there's just this kind of Sadness about, you know, the understandable reasons why people feel fear and then the tactics that they go to to address that fear, which are incredibly counterproductive. So, anyway, the study is called Two Battlefields Ops, Cops, and NYC Youth Gun Culture. It's by Elise White, The Same Spate, Javante Alexander, and Rachel Swainer, and it's from the Center for Justice Innovation.
0: John, what's your chatter?
2: I I have so many chatters, it's hard to. um, So, I'll do two really quick ones. The and one is the saddest, most um, amazing feature that the Times did on what is war to a grieving child. And It's the story of, of kids in Ukraine who've lost their parents. And it's just overwhelming and amazing and just beautifully done. The other thing is a piece um, by Jenna Smilak and Ben Castleman in the Times about the pandemic labor market myths. All of those things that um, were talked about during the pandemic about how work was going to change forever most of them totally didn't happen um it's just a great piece that resets all the f- sort of what, hot takes over the period of time what were but a couple the, of what, what were oh, i saw that headline like, i just did not the sure she session the idea that women um were um you know overly uh, affected by the pandemic i believe it's the case that working age women are now as represented in the labor force as they have been in since 2001, um, I believe. Quiet Quitting is another one, and a few others. So it just, these things might have happened in the moment, but they didn't stick, is the point. Anyway, but the real thing though is the Civil War coins that were found in Kentucky. My fascination with buried things that just sit out there and be um, mysteries waiting to be discovered. 700 gold coins found in a cornfield in Kentucky. There have been Civil War gold myths for a long time. Some of them sort of a part of, as I was reading this, part of the lost cause myth, the kind of idea that um, you know the, there is something um, precious that was buried by the war that has just got to sort of reemerge. There's a way in which the gold feels to me like it fits in with that theory. But this I don't think is the case in Kentucky because it was neutral at the time. It, it was. It may very well that these be that these seven hundred gold coins were buried in advance of a Confederate raid, and if you read about it, you go into the wonderful world of numismatic um, specificity and the people who are tumbling head over heels in joy and wonder at what was found: these Liberty gold double eagles that were minted in eighteen sixty three. And some other coin that was minted only in a single place, that might be the Liberty Gold Double Eagle, actually, now that I think about it. But anyway, you, you just spend a tiny moment in this super intense, um, in addition to the kind of mystery and wonder of it, and the anonymous guy in Kentucky who found it and now has millions of dollars, um, this just very intense subculture was uh, fun to dip into.
0: Uh, that, that can lead into part of my chatter, which is that, as I think I've mentioned, I do this tour of... A secret fort here, secret Civil War fort in the in the forest of Washington D.C. And as it happens, um, I had some cancellations, so there are now unexpected openings. So if you want to go on this tour on July 29th, look on Airbnb uh, exploring a secret fort. Um, I know that it's I, my my tour attendees are almost all Gabfest listeners, so so some folks have asked about openings, and there people are people do
1: love that tour, but,
0: but the. But actually, what was reminded me of it, John, is that um, just the kind of persistence of of money in the Civil War is that there's one aspect of the story that I tell about this fort is that in 1864, a Confederate army uh, besieged Frederick, Maryland, and threatened to burn Frederick, Maryland to the ground. Frederick, which is a beautiful town just outside of Washington, burn it to the ground unless they got a ransom of $200,000. And so all the banks... Of Frederick came together and supplied whatever hard currency they had, and gave two hundred thousand dollars to this this Confederate general so that Frederick was not burned. And that was basically the city. um, The city took a loan from the banks to pay off the general, and that loan made in eighteen sixty four was still being paid off in the (laughs) (laughs) nineteen fifties. So it's just like it's a long stride that civil war has um i just want my my um my real chatter is just another time commending people to another times piece katie weaver has a extremely funny charming piece um my impossible mission to find tom cruise in which she attempts to just see learn anything about tom cruise's life tom cruise has the most secret life and no one knows where he lives. No one knows anything about him. And so she just attempts to figure out where does he live or where does he spend his time? Can I learn any fact about Tom Cruise's private life? Uh, and that was her goal. And and the story is her attempt to do it. And it's, um, I mean, it's, it's a shaggy dog story.
1: Katie Weaver is a genius of
4: shaggy dog.
0: Very charming shaggy dog story listeners you sent so many chatters there were so many i lost probably 45 minutes just leafing through chatters following youtube videos there were it was an incredible variety of chatters that you sent us thank you so much please keep emailing them to us at gabfest at slate.com tweet them to us at at slate gabfest and our listener chatter this week comes from north of the border diane denton of toronto canada
3: hi this is diane denton from toronto canada My chatter is a compliment to last month's GabFest Reads featuring Peter Singer. I'm chattering about Harriet McBride Johnson's essay, Unspeakable Conversations, which first appeared in the New York Times Magazine in 2003. While Singer is best known for his work around animal rights, he is infamous in disability circles for his arguments justifying infanticide of disabled infants. McBride, who is a disability rights lawyer and herself disabled, meets Singer for a face-to-face debate. She recounts that meeting in an essay that is smart, poignant, nuanced, deeply personal, and often quite funny. The first line is a heart stopper. He insists he doesn't want to kill me. Read it online or in Disability Visibility, edited by Alice Wong, an anthology packed with other standout essays by disabled writers.
1: That is an essay that has always stuck with me. It is very memorable.
0: That is our show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Shana Roth. Our researcher is Julie Hugan. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is VP of Audio for Slate. Please follow us on Twitter at gabfest. Tweet chatter to us there, or better yet, email it to us at gapfest at Slate.com for Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson. I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hi, Slate Plus. How are you? As you know, I'm not even going to pretend that some of you don't know this. As you definitely know, there's strikes all across Hollywood, all across the American entertainment industry. The the actors of America, uh, their union SAG-AFTRA has joined the Writers Guild, which represents the folks who write TV and movies, in going on strike. And Hollywood is quite shut down. There are no new scripted shows being made. Uh, no new movies being made, no publicity being done by actors, no no Emmys being done. And it's a really interesting fight. I mean, it's not one fight. It's a whole bunch of different fights. There are a lot of different things that are being argued about. These are two extremely powerful unions because the entertainment industry is, is such a profitable, lucrative industry. Um, and the people who are the talent in the entertainment industry are incredibly powerful in a way that people in other industries are not. So actors, you know, the, the actors union is, is, is ultimately super powerful because there are stars in it and you can't, you know, the world does not run without stars. You don't watch entertainment that doesn't have stars in it. Uh, And the writer's guild is really powerful because they create these works that are so powerful and so moving and so uh, so funny and so joyful and that we all want to see. And that, that can't just be done Yet by robots, although soon enough, um, which is part of the issue, and so these these unions have a lot of leverage, but you know they're up against very powerful forces too, and so we wanted to talk about what they're fighting about. Like it feels to me like there are two. Th- lots of smarter people than us have dealt with this, but there are two kind of main fronts that they're fighting about. One is the fact that streaming industry is fundamentally upended the economics of of television and movies such that the television in particular, that they, the kind of system whereby you'd get, if you were a writer or an actor, you'd get paid over years for work you did earlier, because it would be rerun in different forms on different channels. Um, that, that model has decayed. So there's barely any of that left. And that the new streaming model, there isn't, there's not nearly as clear a path to something gets streamed. And therefore the writers and actors who have a, created that thing get some compensation for the continuing consumption of that product that the payments tend to be more upfront rather than residual that's one big thing and the second big thing is an enormous anxiety among writers and actors about the effects of ai on their industry and how that will um you know disappear work for lots of them and yeah. So I'm going to stop talking and let's discuss any of those issues.
2: The AI, just to grab the last, the last thing you talked about for actors in particular, the compensation, you know, for using your likeness and having it be generated into a into something that goes on and acts and does things, um, but is completely not your act. I mean, is, is your likeness, but that's it. The rest of it's all computer generated. That seems so frightening and the position seems so wide. apart.
0: That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today.